0: The Spin-off Podcast Network.
1: Tallow for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate.
0: You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Sparklab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Sparklab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pounds.
1: Kia ora koutou Kaito, welcome to Business is Boring. How do brands reinvent themselves and stay relevant in a fast-changing world that's only changing faster? That's the specialty area of thinking of today's guest on the podcast, who honed his approach working with celebrities in Hollywood and has taken this thinking into brand, technology and media, especially in his role as the Vice President and Head of Innovation at Vice Media. Mark Adams, based out of Dubai. Was recently in town for the Spark Lab Future State event, New Realities. He's a serial entrepreneur and award-winning global thought leader who's driven by a mission to democratise his knowledge and digitally upskill 10 million people by 2025. And he's travelled to over 100 countries so far in pursuit of this cause. Mark's sessions at the event were raw, honest, and hilarious takes on the state of marketing, creativity, and innovation. And it's such a privilege to have him on today thank you for joining us Tanakwe
2: oh dude thank you so much it's a
1: pleasure hey so first up how was it that you got into the world of entertainment in
2: Hollywood you know honestly I, I do truly believe that there's you know that expression that some people you know achieve greatness and some people have it thrust upon them and some people just lie and make up load of nonsense and then realize they don't know how to do what they've just told everyone they were like, they're going to do. And that was me. So I basically, I just happened to be, you know, I'm from a little town. I'm actually back there right now outside of London called Essex. And, you know, as I was saying, when I was on stage with you guys, everybody here is a wannabe DJ. Like, I mean, you know, like it's literally like it's, it is, you would never meet anybody that's not, uh, especially men. And so I just wanted to run a club night. That's all I wanted to do. Um, and, uh, the only way I could book artists was by offering something that wasn't money. Cause I didn't have any money, still don't. Um, but I, um, but, but yeah, so at that time I just, you know, the only thing I could think to offer these artists that wasn't money was to look after their digital, which I was barely capable of doing, but I just kind of made a bigger deal of it and they stupidly believe me.
1: That's awesome. And how did that take you to, America and working with with with
2: celebrities yeah that was random so uh, it was basically myself and, and a mate and we we, we approached a nightclub in London which is our like temple uh called fabric. So some of you, I'm sure you will know. Um it's uh, you know, we we used to live there basically, you know, and and uh, we just thought you know it was our dream, our kind of teenage dream to run a little night there. Um so we went there and said, you know, would you consider, you know, doing a night, but more kind of for students really. And they basically told us to get stuffed. And I understand that because they're a very respected brand. They the last thing they want is people like me in there. And so you know, really, the way they told us to get stuff because they're so nice. They 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 didn't want to just tell us to get lost. So what they said was, look, you know, the only way that we'll really be open to this idea is if you can book the artists that we've never really been able to book, and I've like now you know anybody with half a brain would think well if you can't book them how the hell are these two first year students going to be able to book them but we were so clueless and the power of ignorance is just such a wonderful thing that we were like sure give us the list and and on the list it was like daft punk you know (laughs) (laughs) right so um It was like all the biggest electronic music artists in the world, you know, Chemical Brothers, etc. And and some others, you know, Bjork and people like that and you know we were very geeky guys we didn't have many i'll be honest we weren't like it wasn't like we had loads of mates and we didn't certainly didn't have the pleasure of having a romantic partners and what you tend to find about people like that is that they're um disproportionately good at digital i would say <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um so we basically uh we thought well, you know okay let's try and you know find a way to book you know the first one was daft punk actually and you know, we've realised that's going to be quite expensive. Um, And, you know, for some reason, I don't, I've never fully understood why, but the agent just wasn't, you know, that enamoured by our pitch, which was, you know, it's one pound drinks, you know, we can get Daft Punk as many drinks as they want. <laughs> 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 it was like, I don't care about that. Um, so, yeah, long story short, we ended up saying, okay, well, you know, that's not going to happen. And then it's actually my brother who has always been kind of my younger, but also older brother in the sense that he's just smart. Smarter and, and just more technically capable and effective than I am, and he was like, "Well, man, like you know, think about what we, you know, one thing we can do is maybe offer them digital. So why don't we look at all the? We did a kind of audit of their digital uh, presence, and actually, it was it was actually Björk that first said yes. Um, so I had this bizarre experience of flying to Iceland when she was performing at this festival. And I had to be backstage, literally, with her and her team passing a joint around. And I had to, like, like just smoke this joint. I was pretty sure it wasn't just cannabis as well. And, and I'm there, like, kind of, like, explaining the internet while smoking a <laughs> joint. With and, the team. and then at the end, you know, I remember after about five minutes, she was like, OK, so the internet is like a tree. And I was like, Yeah. <laughs> And in a weird way, she was actually bang on about that. Um, but yeah, so she was the first person that ever agreed to play our show, and so we did her her digital. We sorted out her website and her out her new album launch, and we looked you know looked across all the digital landscape to try and fix all that. And in return, she played our show for free. So that that was the beginning, and and then more and more artists actually started to come to us, and actually the same we worked with faithless then who were you know you know incredibly uh, popular here in the uk and then the same manager that managed faithless was also the manager of radiohead one of my personal favorite bands ever and so radiohead were having this period with their label where the label wanted to release a best of radiohead and if you know radiohead you know they are not a best of type of band and um, so they were up in arms about this and they basically told the label if you do that that would be the last album we ever release on this label. And the label were like, well, what are you going to do? How are you going to get, you know, how are you going to do your thing if you don't have a label? And that was a fair question. And Brian, who was the manager, came to us and said, if we wanted to manage, if we wanted to release an album without a label, how would we do it? And it seemed obvious to us in the time of LimeWire and all this stuff, that most people are going to download that album for free anyway. So we said, well, why don't you just put it up and then just people can pay whatever they want for it so you kind of swerve that piracy problem that was endemic at the time before the streaming services like spotify and that really put us on the map like everybody started coming to us after that going oh my god like can you can you help us that that was ama- i mean
1: that was some of the biggest news in the world when that um that that album was put up in a pay
2: what you want way it, 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 we had no no understanding of what we were doing and 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 when it finally went out And what was amazing was that it actually, and this shows you the power of community in some sense. You know, you would think most people would go on and say, well, I'm going to pay one penny for that album because you've been offered basically to take it for nearly free. They didn't. The the diehard Radiohead fans went on and paid, some of them paid more money than they would have paid to buy it in the shops because it was a transmission of their fandom and their love for the band and even the fact the band had done this done this this meant even though we were very we were thinking about this very technically um you know we it was it kind of ended up feeling to the community like a contribution and they actually there was there was there was thousands of fans that paid over a hundred dollars for the album when they could have paid one penny it was it was crazy
1: amazing and that kind of like growth of, so you kind of accidentally, uh, but, you know, you make it sound very kind of like light and easy, like you didn't know what you're doing. But the amount of the amount of work going on in the background to, you know, make all that stuff come off must be extraordinary. There's a, you know, great line, you know, say yes and find a way. It sounds like yeah. you're, you're, you're exceptional and have been exceptional at finding a way to make all of these
2: things stick, right? You know, I'm a massive believer in... Um this is this is an interesting kind of like subject that I've been exploring with my brother for quite a long time about the idea of like kind of making what I would call irreversible contracts. You know, there's something really powerful about telling people you're gonna do something and your ass being on the line. And if you can't pull it up, and you know you what's amazing is the human being. I don't believe innovation comes from any comfort zones, right? Innovation comes when we have to innovate. And 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 that was what happened to us. And na- you know, I never had words for that then. But I guess now, guys, that sounds like a really business way of saying what I meant was I was shitting myself. And we were my buddy who I ran it with, Luke, was shitting himself and saying, "Why the fuck did you agree to this?" And it was pure stress and pain. But you know, we kind of just pulled it out of the bag, you know, at the last minute. And it, that that was a real, honestly, like I think back on that, that literally was put us put us in a totally different uh, path in our in our, in our our lives. And we're still at university, you know. Um, and then lots of artists started to come to us after that. And it really took off. Um, and then, weirdly, that was when we got a cease and desist letter from the biggest talent agency in the world, which is um, William Morris Endeavor. And if you ever watch Entourage, it's kind of based loosely on William Morris. And the, the letter basically was from their legal team saying, we don't know what you're doing, but what you're doing is you're procuring our artists who are under agreement with us to play shows for free, and you're cutting out us as the agent and going directly to the manager or the artist in some sense. Um, and we are going to sue you. You know, we're going to take you to court. And, and, and actually, you know, I know now there was no legal basis for that. It was just to try and spark fear, and it did because we were terrified. And what we said was, look, you know, please don't sue us. Like, we're just kids, we don't have any money, you know. Um, But then once we did the Radiohead thing, they actually changed their tune and they were like, come into the office. And we went to meet, um, I'll never forget this, we met a guy called Mark Geiger. And I I really mean this to say that I haven't seen Mark Geiger for a very, very long time, but he will never know how much he changed my life and and my business partner Luke's life as well, because he came into the room with a totally different attitude. He wasn't coming in to tell us off. He came in to try and understand what the hell it was we were doing to get their artists to play these shows for free. And once we explained it and said, look, you know, we think the value chain of music is missing a very important piece, which is that digital piece. And nobody's really doing it. He was like, right. Okay. And, and then the next thing we knew, we were on a flight to LA to go and meet Ari Emanuel, who's the head of William Morris and explain the whole thing over again. And yeah, it was, it was mad. And then, so we ended up, uh, the, the business was acquired um, and we, we, you know, we ended up within the William Morris machine so it was it was amazing. That sounds like an absolute dream. You, you know, like like <laughs> a series of improbable
1: events, you know, like the show Entourage, uh, which is based on that agency and that Ari. Um, how was that as a kind of series of um a series of kind of cause they're pretty improbable events, right? Like get 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 on backstage with Burke get, you know, Radiohead's incredibly anticipated album is your and your lap as to the thing to find a launch for. Like, phenomenal.
2: And then next thing you know, you're in Hollywood. And, you know, the, the most important thing is it, it wasn't only us. Like, there was two lovely ladies within ATC, which is Courtyard Management, which managed Faithless and, and Radiohead and a few others. Um, the, these lovely ladies, Prue and Claire, like, it was at least, you know, 50% of their... Thinking and and you know they they were kind of just, they were marketing experts. We were just idiots that understood digital landscape. So it was weird because they were like they understood like the high level concepts, but we just understood like yeah, well you could like you could do that, you know, like <laughs> nothing's stopping you, you know, like just put a landing page up, you know, like so. So we were kind of interpreting what they were talking about and and then we were kind of maybe giving them some ideas that maybe they didn't know were possible at the time. But I think the the expression of it was definitely, you know, and the way it was executed was all them. But I think the kind of the general idea of it was us and it was just an amazing, I honestly, that, that, that was, that was, there was a game changer. And then when we went out to William Mark, by that time we were actually deep in another campaign because we we kind of started real long story short, like we'd been really early on to Facebook, obviously, because my mate Luke was at London School of Economics. And that was where the, the first place that Facebook actually happened outside of the US. And so we were building, and by the way, this anybody could have done this, like anyone with any amount of knowledge could have done this. And w- all we were doing was we were creating society groups for all the potential subtribes of communities that existed within all the different universities. So we would, it was labor intensive and boring, but it, but it worked. So we'd start up like, you know, we'd start up LSE football group on Facebook. Then we'd start like LSE arts and drama society. And because we were basically the page owners, we, we, you know, they just, self-populated you know we just ping it to the you know the, the people that ran those things and then when it started to spread to different universities oxford and Cambridge, we started to do that for them as well so we were actually sitting on like thousands at one point of groups and this would all be completely illegal now and but it was such a wild wild west then that nobody was really paying attention and um and long story short we realized we had you know very quickly we had these groups with literally tens of thousands of people on and then we started thinking like what else can we do with this because You know, we don't have anything to direct it at. So, you know, one of my friends, John, who's actually a good Essex lad as well, he had had this idea about stopping Simon Cowell from getting to number one. And Simon Cowell had had like four number ones in a row for Christmas. And it's just a thing in the UK. The Christmas number one is like a thing. I don't know why, but... Simon Cowell had managed to get his X Factor winner to the Christmas number one for four years in a row and we just thought why not it'll be fun let's see what this net this kind of network of networks can do so we just directed all these networks at you know this idea that you know stop Simon Cowell from getting to number one and that didn't really work because we didn't really have a alternative so then John John who's an absolutely brilliant smart guy he was like well we need to put an alternative out there. So he came up with the idea that we should try and get Rage Against the Machine killing in the name to Christmas number one, which obviously had You know, been in the top fifty, I think, many many years before, but has thirty six uses of the f word in it, and we just thought it'd be so funny, like families all gathered around at Christmas, and the Christmas number one is like, "Fuck you, I won't (laughs) do what you tell me, fuck you," so that went to number one, and uh, and and that was it, like that. Everybody knew then, and everyone was coming at us, but by that point, we were really deep in the discussions with William Morris, and we kind of quickly after that, we joined we joined them and yeah, that was, that was it. And then we just did exactly that. But for seven years across actors and celebrities and even, you know, politicians, we worked with Obama, we worked with, you know, Buckingham Palace. Um, just, it was, it was surreal, honestly. It was it was fun. Yeah, so cool. And
1: and those roles working with, you know, celebrities and public figures and the like, You know, you're kind of like playing an interpreter role, right? Like, hey, um, this is how you deal with digital. Talk to people who are online first. Um, You know, uh, communicate in ways that are relevant. And it feels like over that last kind of, you, you know, the last kind of 10, 15 years, we've gone from celebrities and public figures that were kind of like monarchs. You know, and there's only a, there's only a couple of them left. Your Elton Johns and your Mariah Careys, you know, like these kind of figures of the imagination. But all the rest yeah. of them have become these kind of you know friends in our pockets, uh, these digital entities. That must have been a fascinating thing to be part of, you know, driving that strategy at at such a kind of influential agency.
2: I think honestly, I I think the. I truly believe that my whole career has just been a litany of failures because if you look at anything I was attempting to achieve and you you uh, then analyse whether or not I achieved that, you, you will all, in all instances see that I failed, like every time. So at William Morris, what I was basically trying to convince celebrities and A-listers was, guys, there's going to be a whole new category of celebrity or let's call it I didn't we we didn't have the word influencer necessarily then but it was this idea that these tools are going to give everybody an opportunity to create content at the in you know at any at any frequency and and distribute it at scale And, and 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 honestly like you know it was really hard you know trying to get Hugh Jackman to to go from saying I'm going to make two movies a year to I'm going to post, you know, um, a video on Facebook like every day, it was really, really difficult to do. And I think, you know, it's testament to the fact that we totally failed, that those A-listers, as you mentioned, no longer have that status in society, you know. So I think um, in terms of, I would give us a a D- for our success in trying to convince Hollywood and the and the kind of a list uh, community that you know that that you know that, that making two movies a year was not going to be the future of the digital and media landscape um but some did some did and 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 then of course we moved into that second tier of you know the others but uh yeah it's and I, and I think you you your point is so bang on you know i don't know if we're going to see i don't know if our kids generation will have celebrity in the way that we have it like I think maybe like a Lady Gaga or a Beyonce may well be the last ever like global celebrity in that regard you know this is a Controversial opinion. I don't know if I'm right about this, and history will, will probably prove me wrong, but genuinely, like, because the, the bottom line of it is we now, where the, the media landscape is so fragmented that m- most of Gen Z conversations, as far as I can ascertain, is someone making an in joke about something they know about, and the other person says, I've no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> That, no. That's also the conversations
1: with, so, so the people who aren't in Gen Z talking to people in Gen Z, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably what your listeners are thinking right now.
2: Like, what the hell is these yeah. people talking
1: about? Yeah. What, what did you learn from what the people who were successful at reinventing themselves? Because that's something that you have then been able to, you know, help brands and businesses kind of understand as well. And it's so fascinating because, you know, I follow um you know the NBA and it's been really interesting oh, seeing on the NBA how you know, during the finals, as they're kind of, you know, people that they had simple narratives around, your LeBron James's didn't end up going as far as they had hoped, suddenly the kind of PR machine kicked into gear and it went, oh heck, we'd better talk about how awesome some of these people are that we've ignored up to this point are. And then, you know, you actually see them change gear and before the draft, you see the publicity machine kick into gear and they start making the celebrities out of the people that are going to be leading the draft. And it's such a machine, it's such a machine to kind of, um to, to view. And it's just all best practice marketing, right? And so, yeah, what, what? What? when you're working at that intersection of culture, celebrity, marketing, entertainment industry, you know, it's like you're doing product launches, but they're
2: people, right? <laughs> Precisely. That is that's such a good insight. It is. Because I think that, and this is where, when I finally worked in, in the consumer brand sector, you know, started working with the Coca-Colas or the, or the L'Oreal's or the Unilevers and stuff, I was so confused. I, I, I honestly thought I was misunderstanding what people were saying, but I actually realized I wasn't misunderstanding it. I just, they just don't think the same way. So when I was going to, uh, in entertainment, it's so obvious. It's like, it's so obvious because the celebrity themselves, let's just say like, I remember the day when there was a massive argument about the I probably shouldn't say this but Coachella had a massive argument about who was going to be the headliner and it ended up coming down to who had the biggest number of fans on social platforms and I personally as an art lover and somebody who appreciates you know I think all of us do I think that's a terrible way to do it really but on the other hand, when you've got two agents both saying, if the Red Hot Chili Peppers agent is saying they have to headline, and Radiohead's agent is saying they have to headline, there's gotta be something that that ties that you know that breaks the tie. And so I remember they turned around and said, you know, Radiohead will headline because they've got more uh social connections, basically, across all the different platforms. And you know, that is that was a real moment as well, because then the the, the kind of the music industry and the and the entertainment industry started going. You know, it, it became like you know, DJs started to get booked because they had followers. Not, no one even had heard their tr- tracks, and you know, there was a lot of gamification of that. You know, and and I won't lie, like in the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of my career, I did a lot of that shit. I'd bust a load of fake profiles on somebody's page, hundred percent. You know, I think we, you, I think anybody who's been there since the beginning will tell you that yeah, we did all that stuff. You know, but you know, we're talking ten years ago, nearly. But. um What it started to get to was, you know, you know, because ultimately at the end of the day, this is where the music industry in particular, it's ultimately the the buyer, the person who's buying in the end, the monetization of the music industry comes from a promoter of a festival or a venue like a live nation paying an artist. And what they're basically looking at is how, how busy is it going to be? If I book that artist, how many tickets is that artist worth? So in the end, you know, it is, it's is—it's the music business, right? So once they figured that out, it became an absolute scramble for people to try and build their followings and stuff. And But what was interesting is when I went to, like, actual commercial, you know, corporate brands, consumer brands, it was so, so, it was so different. Like, they never thought about building a community that was engaged. They just wanted to, like, I don't know. They just wanted to, like, do, like, mini TV ads, but, like, on... All they wanted to do is make short form videos of like the product spinning around and stuff. And I was like, but what about like, it's almost like they were so excited about the opportunity to communicate, but they just didn't consider it as an opportunity to contribute. Broadcast
1: mindset, hey, it'd be like, oh, we got 10 million views. And you're like, "Yeah, OK, and what did you do with all of that attention? Oh, nothing, yes. nothing at all. We just broadcast at them. And you're like, OK, well.
2: That's an interesting relationship. You just turn up in a room, yell and leave. Absolutely. <laughs> like, Absolutely. And, and, and and you know, honestly, I, I wish I could. I mean, I, I, every year I think this will be the year when it changes. It hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah, remarkable, hey. Eh?
1: And and just we'll, we'll 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 jump into the next part into the the seven habits that you've identified for how brands um, are able to kind of reinvent themselves. But I think just before we jump there, like what was it that you saw in Hollywood, which is you know the master um, industry for. You, you, you know, plotting a career and choosing roles to get to a certain level and, you know, moving from heartthrob to leading man, you know, all of those kind of things, like that kind of planning and that kind of reinvention of your persona in the world. What did you learn from that industry and
2: what did you observe there? This is such a great question because you, even the way you asked it is so insightful because you, you, you know, you, 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 that's exactly correct. You know, everything is a repositioning, you know, like you're, you know, I'll give you an example. Like, Taylor Lautner was a client of mine. And, um, and uh, you know, I remember his agent saying, like, we've got to get him out of heartthrob world and into some serious roles. You know, and if you look at, say, like, Robert Patterson, he went, after Twilight, he went into the A24 deep, dark indie movies playing serious roles, serious characters. He was, you know, by the end he was a kind of popping up alongside, like, you know, William Defoe in things, you know, like, you know, he was a serious actor and then tenant and Batman brought him back into the kind of mainstream, but credible mainstream, right? That was a masterpiece of brand building. Meanwhile, God bless him. And he, and and I'll be honest, he doesn't have any of the same kind of level of talent, but his co-star, who was the, who was the, in Twilight as well, just went and made rom-coms fell off the face of the earth and so you're absolutely right to say that you know consumer brands think that they are the masters of thinking uh, about branding but i actually don't know if they know as much as they think they do um it's quite interesting you know so the and i actually think that everything that we learn in the world of entertainment in the early 2000s up to maybe 2010 is literally the playbook for how to grow a consumer brand in 2023 <laughs> so it's all kind of come full circle because finally consumer brands are saying right we need to earn fame and then we need to use paid media to um to show people what we've earned not just and so you know by all means go for reach and frequency and efficient CPM. keep ideas salient at the top of mind like brian sharp says but what are you going to keep salient and top of mind with all that media tonnage? And so the question really comes down to: Well, can you earn something? And you know, so one of the things I always say to my team is, you know, scale. And the question is, scale what? And someone in my team came up with this idea that it's a kind of cheesy mnemonic, but it works. Is that scale stands for story, communicating a love earned, and that's what you should scale. So what you need to scale is a story, a real story that communicates a love that was earned so you contribute then you scale that contribution as communication and that's how all celebrities think well or at least their teams do but it's just not how how normal brands think yeah
1: awesome and we'll be back in a moment with Mark Adams to talk more about making fans not customers Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Hōki mai we we're back with Mark Adams, Vice President and Head of Innovation at Vice Media. Hey, so we've chatted a little bit about, you know, the the seven habits idea uh, that you have. What What is the the seven
2: habits and what can companies
1: learn from those?
2: (laughs) I'll be honest, I think I just needed to have seven of them because otherwise it wouldn't sound like the seven habits of highly effective people. (laughs) Uh, one of the things that we talk a lot about is, you know, this distinction between efficiency and effectiveness, right? So, you know, we know that, you know, you can be, you can be extremely, there's a great Yogi Bear quote where he says, we're going the wrong way, but we're making great time, right? And I think that's how brands and a lot of boardrooms are. They are really efficient at moving the wrong way. (laughs) They are efficiently going the wrong way. And I feel like, um, you Know when you bring it back to the effectiveness thing, you know, you reframe that even though they're annoyingly similar words, but you know, you reframe that as like, what are we doing that's actually effective? And ultimately, let's think, you know, budget and what we need to do as, as brands is really our main role if we're in the marketing function or even as a CEO is, is just to you know manage that PL to m- maintain constant, perpetual growth. That is really what it is, and you know, and 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 so. You know, I, I started to. I mean, honestly, most of these principles were stolen um, with pride from great minds far, far bigger than mine, who I massively respect. And you know, some of those those people, I, I I'm lucky enough to, to to still be in contact with. But you know, pe- people like Mathilde Delholm, who's the chief brand officer at um, LVMH. You know, she did about twenty something years at P and G, and then moved to LVMH and you know, she's been on both sides of what you would call the spectrum of consumers. You know, she's sold, you know, nappies at P&G, and now she's selling, you know, the most expensive Laura Piana um, or you know, kind of um, uh, Dior. Um, you know, so it's it's just fascinating, and 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 and, and someone like that is is such an incredible mind that I've taken so much from. But the way I think about the the seven those seven principles is just I just realised that. I just feel like there's a certain tragedy in working really flipping hard and putting your soul and your because I think creativity requires you to put your soul into your work, not just your your it's not just your intellect. Like, you know, you know, I think everybody who's ever been a creative or a strategist realizes that, you know, you're never not thinking about that brief. You know it's like you're making a cup of tea thinking about that brief. You're on a train thinking about that brief. Like it's a 24 hour job. you know you, you're dreaming about trying to solve that problem. and and, and I just realized that there was something really kind of tragic about the idea that um, all this um, all this effort might be going into effectiveness, but not efficiency. And so I just wanted to get something down and and, and then at a certain moment in vice, because I, I, the, the kind of second part of that story was that I, I I was always working with celebrities and I was at William Morris and kind of, the, you know, I've been there for seven years and I was kind of thinking, what am I going to do next? And I actually got invited to give a talk for Unilever. And I was always really of the belief that I would never work with consumer brands. A, I didn't understand them. And B, I didn't think they had the ability to contribute to the system and therefore would never have a meaningful role in it. And... Um, And actually, you know, the guy at the time was Keith Weed. He was the chief marketing officer of Unilever. And he said, look, I want to introduce you to the team at Dove. And I met them and I realized, like, they were not joking. Like, they had the intention to contribute. They actually wanted to wage war against this size zero models kind of, I can only describe it as like a fetish basically that existed within popular culture and was, you know, very prevalent in men's magazines and women's magazines. And, and Dove was kind of taking this real beauty position and, and I kind of tested them a couple of times to see if they were really serious about it. And honestly, God, like whether they execute perfectly all the time is, is one question, but at the time that team in particular were very, very committed. And so I actually thought, yeah, go on then. So we ended up actually developing a campaign that, that, was a real, real eye opener for me. And it's, it's called Dove Beauty Sketches and it's actually the most awarded campaign in the world ever. And it's also, I think the most, um, it's also the most effective campaign in terms of the, the results. I mean, it's, it's, it's had literally you know billions of views, even years later, it gets millions of views a month. It's insane. Um, and, and if you have a chance to look at it, just type in Dove Beauty Sketches, but, um, Long story short, that that kind of opened me up to the idea of consumer brands. And then I kind of thought, oh, well, and then the second thought was, well, actually, there's probably more money in this. So we started a new company doing just consumer brands. And we kind of, we were digital transformation um, kind of partners or whatever you want to call it. And and we worked with all the L'Oreal's and the Unilever's and the P&G's and stuff. And, and, and then we sold that company to Vice. And I ended up in Vice looking around saying, like, what is the business model here? And the business model was media and selling Ads against content, and I was like, "Oh shit, this is not going to end well." And for if, if for you know for thirty seconds, if you Google around, you'll see that I was not wrong about that, right? And so, what me and my team were tasked with doing was starting new business units within Vice that could allow it to basically lessen its dependency on this media. Uh, advertising model and try to make money in meaningful other ways so the campaigns framework which is what we call the seven steps was actually designed with that innovation job in mind but actually I kind of realized it also applies to developing meaningful and sometimes award-winning kind of brand work as well so that was how it was developed we kind of developed it for trying to analyzing potential ideas that we could launch and to kind of offset this Awful business model of being in the media world. And Vice, like, you know,
1: music and entertainment, comes from a bunch of kind of communities and niches and networks and people that care about the topics you're covering or the, you know, type of... um, Kind of rock and roll news, you know, dropping people behind the lines and war zones who are kind of quasi celebrities and stuff like bananas stuff, right? Like, so you've got that kind of connection to the content that's much more like an entertainment um, product than like a media, you know, typical news media product, maybe, um, or maybe not. Maybe the news is the same and it just pretends to be different. But yeah, how did you go yeah. about? How did you go about? Um, yeah, like uh, identifying. You know, the role of networks and the people at the heart of it, you know, the customer, rather than just thinking about the product and the
2: ads you sell. Yeah, that was that was really, you nailed it. That was the shift, right? Because in order to create these new businesses, we couldn't just, because if you think about it, like every media company in the world basically creates content, harvests human attention, and then places ads either before that content, in in the middle of that content, or beside that content in order to try and drive some kind of association and, you know, potentially transaction. And so we really had to think a little bit differently about, about it. And, you know, myself and my team, I was really, really lucky to have this awesome team. And uh, we just, you know, we started to look at, you know, and, and so that was when we developed the seven steps and like step one is catharsis, which I think is just a strong word for honesty it's like, it's the type of honesty that when you say it, you feel like something's come off your chest, you know? So we, we used to say to ourselves that when we get in the room, we would need not just honesty, but catharsis, like, oh fuck, you said it. Well said, well done. That was honest, you know? So that was, that was step one. And it was just about saying, you know, And catharsis can can be very negative as well as very positive. You know, it can be like, and I'll be honest with you, I've always personally had a huge vendetta, and I, I, I don't mind saying this, I've had a massive vendetta against the way that the vice media social channels work. I think it's a terrible, woeful expression of a really important brand. And I was always obsessed with the idea that, and um, I was always obsessed with the idea that there was more in this brand than just talking about how much a bag of cocaine costs in different cities, and you know what dildos do, you know do this and that, you know, and and so, and um, uh, you know we we had to be that that was catharsis. We had to be honest with ourselves and say sometimes we wouldn't when we open our own Instagram page and look at our own content from our own teams, who are our own dear friends, and we go, oh, what the. F- this you know and 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 so what we realized was that there was and then so that point two of the seven stages is authenticity so it's like okay so now that we've been honest and we've told you know we've told the, the truth what can we authentically say about this brand, And this will work for your brand if you're listening to this or it'll work for anyone. You know, you could say it about Coca-Cola, anyone. But for Vice, we were saying, well, the one thing you can say about Vice is it is willing to go there in the way that South Park would go there and say that thing that nobody's willing to say. And so in a way, although it's being, I think, mismanaged because they're talking about, frankly, quite glib and silly things, sometimes they are serious things and they're important things. And that is. Led us to this concept that maybe there was a news product, a real news product, like an like an Emmy award winning news organization that we could build out of the the kind of the the the, the tone that that was had always been in the brand, and so that you know that led us to that, and that's actually step three of the system is is it spells out the word campaigns mainly because I want brands to think about it, um, but. You know, step, you know, A is catharsis, C, uh, sorry, C, C, catharsis, A, authenticity, M, muse audience or muse community. And so we started to then go into the market and just actually speak to young people and say, like, what's wrong with news? Like, why don't you watch the news? Or, like, what do you think about the news? Or, what could be better? And we just got a lot of, a lot of really interesting stuff back. So, you know, we were just giving real life microphones to people and saying, talk for as long as you want to about the news. And 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 you know we were getting back like why does it have to be like left wing or right wing why does it have to be a guy usually or, or a lady and why do they have to be have that voice and why do they have to sit behind a desk and then say over to you John and you know all that stuff and so we were just designing with the feedback that we were getting from the muse community that we'd identified and then you know and then and then P of the of the of the seven steps you know the C A M P campaigns P is pain you know the pain that the that news community are feeling and you know what you start to realize is what starts off as like "Mm, that's a bit of a problem actually becomes like and you know the other thing is i don't trust any news source anymore and i don't believe that and i and if i don't see it i don't believe it because if it's someone standing with a microphone saying this happened yesterday probably it didn't and so we start to say we have to design a news source where if it's not on camera it didn't happen so if we can't get our reporter to be there at exactly the moment that the car drives into a bunch of protesters in Charlottesville. If we're not there, as far as we're concerned, we're not going to report on that. We're not. We, we have to. We can only report on what the bird's eye, or, or sorry, the, the the human being in the picture is seeing. And so there has to be this complete integration of what the reporter on the ground is seeing. And what the audience is being told is happening. And the the reporter can give a little bit more flavor of the environment and situation, but never just stand on top of a building and say, "Ah, beneath us, this is happening, you know. Um, so yeah, so that was and that's kind of the first four steps, really, is you know CAMP, um, you know, campa- uh, of the campaign framework, which you know catharsis, authenticity, muse community, and the pain that that muse community are in. So that was kind of how we approached all the different new businesses that we started to launch, and and and, and how I've approached all of the the work that you know that, that that's been successful. I think um, with the brands that we've worked with as well.
1: and that's such a cool journey. I mean, I, I love the um I love <laughs> your very disarming kind of um you, you know, refreshing honesty um slash, you know, humor around you know, the artifice behind these things of, of, of trying to make it spell s- campaigns and all that. Like, there's so much in business, you know, wisdom and chat and, you know, the circuit and all of that, which is so obviously kind of post facto reasoning on things. But, and, and then they don't, they don't kind of acknowledge any of it, which is quite funny. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> it's, Absolutely. It's, like, literally, that was never campaigns. It was tough. It was, it was a totally different thing. And then we just thought, if we're going to apply this to actual brands, we better flip and come up with a word that they're going to go, oh, yeah, that's the word. And it's, you know, know, good communication strategy.
1: Find a framework, make it make sense. You know, like, 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 fantastic. And, like, it sounds like a lot of fun. And, like, the energy that you brought to the event and that you bring to the work you do, you know, must be really refreshing as well with a lot of these brands and, you know, a lot of these quite staid areas. What's it like, you know, wandering into – a boardroom of a, um, you know, a big old company with some very set in their ways, best practice marketing, and you know, telling them, um, you know, they're doing it wrong, and helping them get get to um, get to better results that actually connect more and are more about the audiences they serve and less about, you know,
2: the the playbooks they have. That's a great question. Honestly, I used to take the fire and brimstone approach, so I would just go in and just like <laughs> it was like a. It was like, you're just effing and blinding and just telling people well, fuck off. And, like, and, and I, I've really kind of tried to switch that up in the past, like maybe five years. And obviously, I'm getting a bit older as well. And I think, you know, now I, I try and lead with honestly with empathy because I think most, I really believe this. I swear to God, 99% of the people that you meet in brands are really good humans. They are such good humans and they are fucking exhausted They are exhausted. I think the reason they're exhausted is because they're going into battle every day against the dragon of attention. You know, they're fighting against, you know, Netflix spent 13.6 billion on content this year. You know, the UK spent 11.2 billion on defense, right? So that's just one of the platforms, right? We are fighting. We're not competing with other, you know, Coke isn't competing with Pepsi anymore. Coke and Pepsi and every other brand is competing with every single paywalled non-advertising system from Fortnite to Hulu to Prime Video to Spotify Premium, right? It's like we have literally, the consumers have said, I will pay $7.99 a month so that I don't get ads. And and honestly, the people in brands are good people. They're just exhausted, and, and so what I try and lead with is this, this idea, and that's why step one is catharsis, because it's like, how's it, what's it like to work here? And honestly, it doesn't take long before someone, usually some, and honestly, it's usually someone who's kind of a bit more junior, but doesn't mind just stepping up and just says, it's miserable. And everybody's shoulders go down and everybody goes, yeah, it is, it's really, really hard. And we're working till one o'clock in the morning. And we're missing our friend's birthday party. And we're missing this. And then the campaign goes out and nothing happens. And so we, st- I really started to have like a, a tremendous amount of empathy for them after a while and say, we've got to give them something to fight this dragon of attention with. that's not just a blunt spoon, you know. So I think that that those seven steps were designed to craft the sharpest weapon possible to give you the best possible chance. Now, it's up to you how you wield it. But... You know, I think that the intention to come at things with genuine intention to contribute will always, from an evolutionary point of view, human beings have now got to the point where we are just skimming through communications and then we stop when we see something that feels like it's got nourishment value. And I it doesn't mean it has to be it could be humor, it could be you know, it could be just the honesty, it could be it could be serious, it could be but Truth be told, like, you know, if if you turn up to what and so mostly what I try and do with teams is say to them, guys, if your intention is to give value, I promise you the ROI is going to go through the roof and what you'll get back. You're not even ready for you. You you won't even have you won't even have, ex, have experienced something like the network effect that you're about to create by like going to a defined network, not just the demographic, but an actually defined network of people that do exist with the, with the die-hard intention of contributing to it. That is how you create a network effect. And if you do that, it becomes a joy. Like work becomes quite a fun thing. And the, and the results start to, to flow, you know? It's so
1: funny, eh? Like, like you know, go from go from being extractive to um you know a contributor and things might end up um <laughs> growing for you that's <laughs> such a lovely idea as a couple of final thoughts like you know as someone that's like you know um made a lot of awesome things happen in a lot of different places by kind of putting yourself forward and then you know making it making it happen um you know opened your own doors and created your own opportunities there like what advice would you have for people who are interested in and, and a lot of these things that you've done them with, they could feel far away to people. Like Fabric could f- feel far away. Uh, Bjork could feel far away. Hollywood could feel far away. You know, contributing and being a part of, you know, a huge Dove campaign could feel far away. Like how, how do you, um, yeah, how do you get yourself into spots where you can then build, build that kind of um, profile? That's a
2: great question. I wish I had a better answer than this. I think that the most important thing is to remember that we are really living in a time that when you analyze the system, and if you can kind of imagine you're Neo and you can see the matrix, right? In our parents' generation, we kind of had to sit around waiting for someone to pick us. You know, we needed someone's uh, authentication or permission or patronage to move up. And I would just say, you know, there's something quite beautiful about this because you can afford to be defiant and just say, I ain't waiting for any fucker to pick me before I go and try something. Like, we are living in a totally permissionless world now. You do not require anyone's permission to begin anything. And that's awesome, you know? That's really awesome. And if your intention is to contribute, I guarantee you whatever you put forward is going to be received in a totally different way than if your intention is just to con- communicate. Like I give you an example, like on, on LinkedIn, right? I'm not very good, at, but I've managed to get, you know, about 150,000 followers now, which is nothing compared to some people, but it's a lot more than I had. And I remember when I had about 5,000 followers off LinkedIn, I can't be bothered, right? And it was because all I wanted to do all the time was post about my most recent achievement, You know that post on LinkedIn where it's like, I humbly accept (laughs) the honor of being the fire safety warden, right? That's not a post for anyone else. That's a post for you trying to communicate to everyone else how awesome you are. My most recent post on LinkedIn was I was was searching the feed and I found a post of a guy called Jordan who lives in Edmonton, Canada. And I want to do a shout out to him because we've become friends in the past couple of days. And he's got stage four cancer in his lungs, his pelvis, and his spine. He's thirty-one years old. And please, if you if you doubt me, go on my LinkedIn and have a look at this post. Right? And I've never met this guy in my entire life. All I did was repost his thing, and then I said, "Ladies and gentlemen, by agreeing, by a po- by liking this post, you are agreeing to to join Jordan's uh, all clear party that we're going to have." on the 1st of January, 2024. It's going to be fancy dress, and it's going to be a massive global Zoom call, so everybody can join, and it's at 9 p.m. GMT on the 1st of January, 2024. And then the the bottom of it said, I haven't met Jordan, you haven't met Jordan, and that's the fucking point, right? Now, that post, I don't even need to tell you, has fucking exploded. I got contacted by some press department from a newspaper in Canada today saying, Tell us why you did that. And I didn't do it. I, I wrote the post in about two, two minutes. It wasn't considered. I didn't have a strategist there thinking through what was good. I just saw it and thought, what an absolute legend this guy is. What bravery. So I posted it. Now I've got like 500 people saying we want to come to this party that, that we're going to do. And, and I've got people messaging me saying, why don't we do physical location parties? We're in London. We'll do it. That is what human beings are about. We respond to a certain type of energy and all you got to do is stop thinking about how does this make me look and, and 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 i might do i look right and oh hang on a minute you know because that's what we think it's about and just fuck that stuff and just contribute in some tiny way and watch what happens yeah awesome and as a as a final thought what will success be for you i'm from a working class background my parents are teachers i was never you know i I remember playing. Uh, you know, we'd have water fights in the in the street, and everybody have like a Super Soaker five thousand. And my mum would give me a bottle of milk that I should fill up with water, and I'd throw it, and it'd come out of my hand, and I'd end up smashing a bottle over some kid's head accidentally. Right? That's you know, I didn't come from like. And so for me, I truly, truly believe, and I'm, I'm quite you know fired up about this idea of, you know, there are some seriously smart people out there. And all they need is just a tiny bit, the smallest bit of steering, steering and maybe a little bit of, you know, upskilling and a couple of things that, you know, would help them get where they need to be. And so that's why I'm obsessed with this idea of like digital inclusion, basically, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I live in Dubai and I'm telling you, every Uber driver from Karachi that is driving me is smarter than me he just hasn't got the opportunities i've got and if he knew even some basics he could he could do whatever he wanted and and and, and that for me is a constant source of kind of sadness, but also a, a source of, of um, energy. And it, it really, it riles me up and it also pushes me to go and do, do these digital transformation and, and education sessions around the world, which is that that would be my dream to just, just do that and not have to think about anything else. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing the story today,
1: Mark. And yeah, people, um, where can people go to kind of follow your
2: journey? Is LinkedIn
1: the spot or how do people uh, get involved and learn more about? the digital inclusion work
2: yeah probably linkedin's a good place it's just mark adams uh, linkedin but um also you know um i i just recently started a newsletter just purely because i realized i got to this horrible point where lots of people would message me it really smart amazing you know highly intelligent intelligent people would, would message me and say hey man like can you like give me some mentorship and stuff? And I was trying, I really was trying to do it, and I just realised like I just can't, I can't do all of this. So what I thought I would do is actually create a newsletter. Um, and actually, you won't believe this. I'm working with my mum on this because my mum's also really super driven by this. So me and my mum are just trying to work on a newsletter that we can just put out for free and just give away everything. Like as far as I'm concerned, everything that I've ever learned, every mistake I've ever learned, and every you know win that I've ever had is is somebody else's property now. I I, I want to give every single one of those tips and tricks away because, you know, everybody else can have them as far as I'm concerned. You know, there's it's, it's a total open API as far as I'm concerned. So I want to try and share that as much as I possibly can.
1: Yeah, love it. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing the story today. I hope you get a little trickle of uh, newsletter signups from New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> awesome! So, thank you, Mark Adams. Thank you to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer Daihe Butler. Do follow Business Is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave us a review if you like what we do. In e no order.
0: From the Spin Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by Spark Lab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on Spark Lab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Kia ora e te iwi. Kia here, Podcast Manager at the Spin Off.